You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Robert Smith, your host of Fair Game. This season has been a lot of fun to share with you all. I think we've put a terrific lineup together, and today's guest is no exception. He currently oversees the last carnival in America that still travels by train. His family history with the carnival industry is deep. He's here today to share some insight on exactly how the COVID pandemic has impacted not only his company, but other ride operators throughout America. From Straight Shows, this is Mr. Jay Straits. Jay, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, you taking the time to to be on the show today. Um, I want to jump right to it. For the folks around the industry who may not be familiar with you and your company, tell us a little bit about Straight Shows. Uh, Straight Shows is an East Coast uh, Midway uh, provider. We are based in Orlando, Florida, which is where I am right now. We play the Eastern Seaboard all the way from Florida to Vermont. Uh, so we don't make it out west. So I'm guessing a lot of a lot of folks out there that are in the Midwest and the West may not be as familiar with us. I think most people on the East Coast are because um, we, we traveled you know, pretty much the entire east, Eastern Seaboard. Um, we are a turnkey Midway provider, like most big providers, um, providing the rides, food, games, um, you know, at major fairs all over the East Coast. Uh, we are on our 97th year, I guess, of operation. And um, of course, this year it got cut a little short, <laughs> but uh, so we've been around quite a while. Uh, we actually, I'm third generation. We actually have the fourth generation uh, currently active working in the business. Um, and, uh, you know, just have had quite a, quite a strange year of it ever since March. Yeah, I'd say it was somewhere around March. And, and I want to get to that uh, here in just a, a second. Um, but a little bit more about the company. What does a typical season look like? How many shows do you typically play in a season? Uh, we typically run about 20 events a year. It can go anywhere between 18 and 22. Um, and our season kind of breaks up into the Florida, it's kind of the Southern uh, Florida route during the winter time when the Florida fairs operate. Um, and then we have a little brief uh, break and then we'll move North and we head typically straight into South Carolina and then into New York state, um, kind of make our, our Northern route up until later Labor Day. Then after Labor Day, we'll kick back down into Virginia uh, and then finish up coming down through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, back into Florida. Yeah. You know, I've worked with you guys as the, when I've done my Conjure Fortune Machine Act, I've, I've been down at like Osceola County with you guys. And I got to tell you, one of the coolest rides you have is that, that double carousel. Oh, it's a beautiful piece. Are, Venetian, are you yeah, guys the Venetian. only ones in the industry that have that? I think we're the only ones that kind of have an, an older wooden uh, antique Venetian carousel. I think there's some newer versions that uh, are out there traveling. Yeah. Uh, that I've seen a lot. Of, and you see them, uh, they're, they're used quite often uh, in the malls that have the carousels in the, you know, in the center kind of rotundas of the malls. It's not as popular as it used to be, but 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of malls used to have the carousels in them. As well. Sure. That's just one of the pieces, you know, for all the fairs I end up performing, you know, from Florida to California and back all year long, that's one of those pieces that when you go out and you look at it at night, you, that there's a sense of magic to that piece. Like you can look at other carousels, 
but there's a sense of magic to that piece that I don't get from, from other, other pieces. That's a fantastic, um, fantastic ride that you guys have. Um, speaking of your organization and the, and the rides you guys provide, how many people do you typically employ that travel with the show? And then how many local hands do you end up hiring when you get to a given location? That will depend on the size of the event and the time of the season. So during the winter time, when we're just doing maintenance, we can go down as low as carrying maybe only 25 or 30 of our kind of supervisors and key personnel. We'll do maintenance, you know, then when we kick up and we had Osceola happens to be our first event of the year, typically in February, and we'll ramp up and typically we'll have a, a hundred to 120 uh, that are working directly for us. Um, and then we'll hire what we need locally. And that just depends you know, nowadays it depends on whether we're getting our H2B labor. We, we, we do utilize the H2B program. And uh, this year we got capped out. So we, uh, we didn't have our labor. So we hired a whole lot more local help. Um, and then we also use temp services, um, which, which is difficult because we get much higher turnover and sure. we don't have the experience of our, uh, of our H2B help. Most of our H2B guys have been coming back over 10 years. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're think, very experienced. Yeah. yeah, within our industry, I think we hear a lot because we're in the industry about the H2V, H2B visa program, uh, but I don't generally think that the general public really grasps what that is. I spoke with Marla Calico earlier in the season about that program, but I definitely like your take on it. How important is that H2B program for ride operators like Straits? Uh, it, uh, well, uh, for straights, for us in particular, not as important as I would say industry-wide. We, um, we don't, you know, like I said, if we're carrying 120 people, you know, we're less than half of that is H2B labor. There are a lot of big shows out there that carry a much higher percentage of H2B labor. Um, I think that one reason we're able to is because we have a winter route, so we have a more stable workforce because they work you know february march april may sure. if, if you're a show that doesn't operate in the south in the winter it's going to be much harder to keep help because you're not operating year-round um and you're going to depend more and more on that h2b program um you know the the, uh, the other thing that happened this season was uh the j1 program also uh, which which we're not allowed to use uh, but the amusement parks are allowed to use it also got uh, kind of shut down by a presidential order yeah so um we actually uh helped we utilized our help and uh and sent some of them to the amusement parks that were not able to get their j1 labor yeah uh, after, after COVID hit so those programs are very important to a lot of operators um i understand you know and i understand the president's um commitment to american labor but there there are just certain circumstances where domestic labor is not going to be the best answer. And our industry happens to be one of those because we turn off. Um, and it's, it's hard to, to draw people in to a, to a, a job and say, Hey, November 15th, and we turn off and you, you need to go home and, and come back and join us in January. Yeah. And um, I was about to, I wanted to get to that because, you know, politically immigration visas and work visas like that become a very hot button issue. It's, it becomes a very, a wedge issue that politicians use. You know, you always hear the phrase that when they're talking about H2Bs or visa, you know, work visas, you hear they're taking American jobs. Can we put this to rest here? 
are, are Americans just pounding down carnival operators doors to come work in the industry only to lose someone, lose that job to someone with an H2B visa? No, the H2B labor is much, much more expensive because of the application process, the transportation, all of the regulations. So if it would be, it would be financially better for all of us as operators to hire 100% domestic labor um, because we don't have all that additional load on them. Um, it's, it's just very difficult. You know, we typically ask three questions before we, you know, as our hiring, when someone calls, um, whether it's off of an employment ad or whatever. And, you know, the first one is, are you willing to travel nine months a year? Um, and, you know, in the you know, living conditions, living in a trailer, living in a bunkhouse, um, you know, moving every 10 days, 14 days, uh, usually in about three questions, you know, they're not, in, they're not interested in the positions anymore. Um, and, and mostly it's that it's the, the nature of the traveling. A lot of people are willing to travel a few days here and there, you know, um, or come home on the weekends, do a sales job and, and travel and come home and be able to be with their families and, and in their home uh, for the weekends or three or four days a week. It, it's a different, it's a lifestyle, it's a lifestyle industry. Um, and for the people who enjoy it, it's great. But for a lot of people out there, they can't, they can't wrap their head around, you know, leaving leaving living in a bunkhouse and and traveling nine months a year sure so. yeah and when you're in an industry where you know the job's not done until the lights on the ferris wheel turn off at night it, it these are long hours it's this is not you know an easy nine to five job it's it it can look fun maybe to the public hey man you get to you know run these rides and travel at the carnival and that's but there's a lot of very hard work and and it takes a really dedicated worker to make it happen yeah, and I think it takes a certain personality. Um, like I said, it's a lifestyle, and the enjoyment in the lifestyle is actually the camaraderie, the hard, the hard work's part of it. Yep. Uh, you know, getting out and doing the hard work, but it's the people, the people that are in this business and stay in this business and and you know work and retire out of it are are there because of the people. They just love that uh, that hard work in you know the show's going to go on, uh, and uh, being around a, a there, it doesn't take long to see that it doesn't matter if it's raining, if it's cold, you know, uh, hot, whatever it is, night, day, we're going to get the equipment up. Uh, we're going to get it moved. We're going to get set up and we're going to be operating for opening. Um, so in many ways, it's, it's like a live production, like a concert, like you know, when, when the show's got to go on, it's got to turn on. It's just got a lot more moving pieces. And there's, there's a lot of fun in that. And I think my favorite thing about the people in this industry is how resilient and hardworking they are. Um, it's, it's kind of refreshing because I think a, a lot of times now you see people that aren't so willing to work that hard. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing that we do is once we do hire a lot of our domestic help, we'll hire them and, and they'll only work for a couple of hours and then they figure out that it's hard work um, and they leave. So you know, a lot of times we'll hire our domestic help and either it's either within the first couple hours or the first couple days. And, you know, you, you get them in there and they, they figure out kind of the hours and, and what's going on and how hard the work is and they leave. So even when we do our recruiting, um, the, uh, the retention that we get out of every, out of the, you know, the percentage of retention we get is very, very low. Um, but then if they do stay, you know, if they stay and travel for a couple spots, um, I think they tend to stay for the long run. 
Yeah. Um, and, and that's the other, that's kind of the saving grace of it is we do pick up domestic help on a routine basis, but it's, it's one here and there that will stay with us. Um, and, and we'll pick them up out of different towns, um, different situations. Sometimes they're experienced and have traveled in the past. Um, and sometimes they haven't. Yeah. And I mean, uh, clearly it's, it's a lot of moving parts uh, at all times. And back um, somewhere around mid-March, somewhere between, I don't know, March 11th and 13th seems to be the dates that people are talking about. A lot of those moving parts came to a grinding halt. I think, you know, March 11th, that was the date that not only was, did World Health declare this a pandemic, but that Houston Livestock Show pulled the plug. I think that was the date that a lot of us in the events industry opened our eyes and went, oh, this could be a really big deal. Do you remember where you were and, and what you were thinking when Houston canceled and all these dominoes started to fall down? Um, well, we, we were more removed. I think we were, we were going into Vero, uh, the Indian River Firefighters Fair. So we had right. gotten done with Osceola, St. Lucie had great fairs at both fairs, really strong opening for the season. Um, and as we started hearing the news of, of Houston and and just the pandemic, uh, we, we were checking with our, the firefighters at Vero, you know, all through the week at St. Lucie saying, hey, are you sure we're going to be able to open? And we kind of, you know, we're checking nonstop because we didn't want to spend the money to transport and set everything up um, and then not be able to operate like we had started hearing about. Now, all through that week, all the way up until opening day, we had the assurances from the county, from the health department, from our committee, the firefighters who are very good friends of ours, um, that we were going to be able to open. There was not an identified case of COVID within a hundred miles of Vero Beach, Florida. Uh, so everybody felt like it was safe all the way going in. And um, then, the, of course, the CDC, I think it, it, what really triggered ours was the CDC issued to I believe the local jurisdictions kind of an official notification on, it was either on a Thursday or the Friday of opening in Vero Beach. And uh, the firefighters got a call from the fire chief and the head of the health department and um, ended up that about an hour before opening, they decided to not open uh, at the request of, you know, what really was their boss. <laughs> Right. So they were in a unique situation in that the fire chief is also their boss and their other, you know, and their, their real job. They're all, you know, it's a unique fair and that the firefighters there put on the event in order to raise money to support the burn fund, right. for burn victims uh, for firefighters and fire victims. Uh, so it's not what they do all the time, like a lot of fairs. Of course. And and of course, when your boss comes down and says, "Hey, I think you guys shouldn't do this," they uh, they certainly are going to listen. Um, and I don't fault them, but it's uh, I, I do. I, I've given a few talks at the Florida Fed, uh, Florida Federation, and think I don't think that uh, going forward it's appropriate for us to close just at the suggestion of our officials. I think that they need to exercise the due process and and you know use whatever legal means they have to close it down if there's a problem i think otherwise sure. we should be making a decision to open because <laughs> it seems like at that time you guys probably you know covid was there were starting to be a few cases getting going around the united states but it seems like you guys probably could have run that fair and and probably miami could have run because man miami 
God bless them. Yeah. They were within what an hour, 30 minutes of opening. And that yeah. was it. They pulled the plug. Yeah. And, 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 and the larger the event, the bigger the cost for setup, tear down. Exactly. Cause like you said, really, you had already, really you'd moved, plug. you'd moved everything into Vero. Like you could have pulled the plug at that point from St. Lucie and gone home and sat tight, yeah, but instead it, it been, it, you put it, all that money into Vero, you pay all those employees to be setting your stuff up, all that labor and then you don't have any income, any revenue from that fair to help cover it. So it leaves you guys in a tight spot. So when it comes to, you know, revenue for 2020, I know several fairs have done things like, you know, drive-in movies or, or, or fair food experiences. How do you guys as a ride operator get creative to generate revenue in an environment like this? Um, well, first of all, to your first point, um, in retro, you know, hindsight's 2020. In retrospect, I think that Florida closed down too early. We didn't really have the virus everywhere. In general, I don't mean just events. I mean, we, we kind of went with this harder shutdown right in the beginning when we didn't have a lot of cases. Of course, we canceled our events. When I look back at it, we should have been able to play Vero. Uh, we then go to Seminole County and Lake County. And I think that had we finished our Florida route, that we would not have contributed to the spread of COVID um and we would have been able to wrap it up and pull everything back into our winter quarters and have chosen not to go north um which gets way more expensive when you start moving you know when everyone starts moving out of the florida market going moving north the mileages get bigger yep and then you're, you're scaling up with all of your help week on week um so you have to have a consistency in your route in order to gross the dollars you need to be able to cover the payroll um so to answer your first question, I think we shut down early. I think it cost us a lot, uh, especially not knowing then that it was going to last this long. You know, when we started shutting down, I think our idea was we're going to shut down for 30 days, 45 days, whatever, 60 days, and that we were going to resume our routes at some point, wherever that made sense. Um, of course, that's not how things unfolded. Now, how did we get creative? Well, we did try to operate once. So Florida went into kind of a shutdown and then we opened back up. And um, as we opened back up, uh, of course, things spiked again. And that's, I, that's when I believe we really had our real spike of the virus was on our second, when they shut us down the second time. It was actually the first time where I knew or heard of anyone I knew actually contracting the virus. But um, what we did is right as all of that was coming along, we typically go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina and operate at the racetrack there with an event. And they, because they're privately promoted, um, when, they, when they canceled, they didn't cancel, they just postponed. And they had the ability to just turn on, on a, in a couple of weeks notice, should, you know, should we be able to come and service the event? So, and they really wanted us to come because South Carolina uh, did not shut down like a lot of places. It stayed more open almost all the way through everything than any other state that I know of. Um, so we decided when things started calming down here after the first shutdown to go ahead and green light that and plan to, uh, to go up there and operate at the track. Um, it was, for, in retrospect, it probably wasn't the right decision, but we got up there. It happened to be the week that we were opening. Um, Myrtle Beach became the national media hotspot. 
talking about transmission and people were upset because people were vacationing there. And then I guess, uh, you know, driving home and carrying the virus back to, to their hometowns. Um, so it became a, a national media spotlight. I think that negatively impacted us pretty strongly with our attendance. Um, but we did operate, we operated for the full 10 days of the event, all said and done. You know, I know a lot of people aren't sharing their numbers or percentages out there. Um, I think one, because they don't want people to hear how low it is and then decide not to operate. <laughs> Um, we, we were 20 to 25% of our typical attendance wow. at that event, um, which obviously, you know, obviously it doesn't pay the bills. Yeah. So, I was gonna say you're starting to lose money at that point. Yeah. Well, just the transportation there and back, um, it, you know, is fairly significant. And at those numbers, I don't think those are the numbers that we're seeing now. I, I would like to couch that. I've heard some pretty good numbers out of the last few events that have operated here in October and November. Um, as a matter of fact, I think one of the ones that just got done was the Pensacola Interstate Fair. And I believe with 75% of the midway space and rides, they came about even. So much better numbers than we had earlier. And they on. had a hurricane come through in the middle of it. And it didn't operate for two days, basically, yes. So I think there's there's some good news out there. So I don't want to I don't want people to listen and and take this out of context. This is very early on and we were trying to get open because we had secured PPP funds that we could use for our employees to keep them working, um, which I think we should address later, uh, you know, in another topic that, that retaining our employees is probably most operators biggest concern because we utilize the H2B program and it's been banned until December 31 and it's hard to recruit. Um, so, you know, keeping our guys working was really important. And that's really why we did it. We said, let's get out there and try to operate. We also had indications at that time that the event that we typically go to after that, um, well, not after that, the two events that we go to after that had definitely canceled because they were on Long Island in New York and New York was in the hot place, spot. Still is, is still in a hard shutdown. Yeah. Um, there was a feeling that New Jersey might be opening up and that we might be able to go into the Meadowlands um, with Al Dorso. And we were talking to him nonstop. He had some indications from the governor's office that they might get approvals. And, and then as we began to transport to South Carolina, he called and said, no, the governor's office has told us we can't operate. So that changed the dynamic a lot. You know, we weren't going to South Carolina just to go to South Carolina through talking with our fairs, we had hoped that we would go to, um, to Meadowlands. And then we thought there might be a chance to postpone the York fair, uh, talking with Brian up there and then do kind of a short route and just go to New Jersey, York, and come back into Virginia, which would have left out the Erie County fair, Champlain Valley fair, and a couple of smaller events that we play on the way to this. So basically cut out the mileage and that, you know, that extended route, tighten it up, bring the transportation costs down and try to have some consistency in a route, thinking that the Southern route was gonna pick up and be fine, um, which of course didn't happen um, as well. So when all that started falling apart, um, we did adjust and we had a, a local, uh, a local uh, owner there in North Myrtle Beach who typically has a carnival book in on his land for a, a kind of a seasonal amusement park. 
he came to us and said, hey, my provider's not going to make it um, because of COVID. You guys are here. Do you want to come operate? And we did. And we operated all the way through Labor Day weekend. Good. Um, and, and that was that was actually a good thing uh, right up until uh, school went back in. And then when, you know, when, as the season went on, the Myrtle Beach hotels, uh, the occupancy kept getting higher and higher coming off of that peak where they got in the national news. Um, I think when we were, when before school went in, we were approaching the 40 to 50% occupancy in the hotels. And then, um, you know, even before Labor Day, when schools went back in, um, whether it was virtual or in person, that they saw that traffic drop dramatically, which is not typically what happens. They're usually pretty strong right. all the way through Labor Day. And uh, at that point, we had talks with the landowner and you know, we all agreed that it was best to shut down, start transporting the equipment back home to Orlando and go into kind of a longer, harder shutdown until things open back up. And that is where we have been pretty much ever since. So um, going on a few months of not operating. Yeah. Um, what we, again, the employees being our biggest concern, as we were wrapping things up in Myrtle Beach, we got a call from uh, Danny Houston and Blake Houston with North American Midway Entertainment. Right. And they, they were in the process of trying to piece together three spots in the Southeast um, back to back to try to salvage the end part of their route. Um, and they had really good uh, feedback from those events that they were going to kind of go no matter what they were going to operate. So they, uh, they knew we were closing down and they knew that we had employees and they asked if we could uh, help them by sending our employees over to operate with them, which was the perfect solution for us because we still had PPP funds, um, but we didn't have work. And so we ended up transporting bunkhouses and personnel, taking a full bus of our personnel over there to operate uh, with North American. I believe they had, I know my sister's show, S&T Magic sent some of their employees, I believe two or three other shows sent their employees as well because once again north american didn't have any of its h2b labor would not even would not have even been able to put together that route if they didn't have the help from these other shows that weren't able to or were done with whatever route they could piece together so despite the fact that i mean technically speaking um on uh, on paper you guys are competitors but in reality, you guys got to work together and make sure the industry stays healthy. Yes. And, you know, I think as the kids would call it a social media, we're all frenemies. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, I, I'm guessing if straight shows could come up with a, a business plan and a route that would get you, you know, 150 shows a year, you, you could probably take it. I mean, that's big market share. But at the end of the day, we all have our place. And if we're all not kind of rolling together to make things happen, it, it hurts everybody. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's as big an understanding in the industry of, of how much we all do rely upon one another. Um, and I think we're, we're fixing to learn a really big lesson in that on the fair side of things. Um, and because I think the, the big fairs that they can obviously stand on their own because of their size of their revenue stream um, might not realize how important the smaller shoulder season events are to all of their vendors, oh, yeah. uh, to, the, to the ride operators, to the acts, to everyone who provides services at a fair, 
needs to have a, a cohesive, consistent route, and they need to not jump, you know, 900 miles at a time to get somewhere. We've exactly. got to piece it together and, and understanding the importance to this industry of routes that are efficient, that make sense. Um, so that like, you know, the reason straight show stays on the East coast is because the mileages don't get out of control. If we go way West, it's going to be a much higher transportation costs, take much more time in between events, which means you're carrying your people at payroll. Right. Um, and, you know, it, uh, it, it's that route going together is, is just extremely important. So, yeah. well, it's like um, you couldn't, whatever the deal is, you know, whatever your contract is with, with Erie County, uh, up that way, you wouldn't be able to keep that deal if you didn't have the four or five or six fares in the middle that get you there. Yes. And, um, so going before all of this canceled, that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, actually just yesterday we had an OABA call and had some fares on there talking about how important it is when we're, as we're starting back up to talk with all of our fares that, that are in a routing together to make sure that we're making consistent decisions. So what we did is we we had uh, Brian uh, Blair from York, uh, Jessica Underberg from Erie, Tim Shea from uh, Champlain Valley. Um, we would all get on every two weeks before we all canceled. Um, we would get on a call, get the updates, because you know the, the uh, you know obviously Tim in Vermont knew that I wasn't going to pick up. Uh, straight shows and transport it to Vermont for one event. Um, and, you know, all of our, all of our large fair managers are, are very savvy and they understood that. So we decided to get on the phone together and basically everyone made the call to get the boards didn't make their calls at the same time, but we kind of knew everyone was going to make those calls. Um, and it was a matter of the boards making it official. Um, so we kind of had a good idea that that entire section of the route was going to go away all at once, right. which then, then we went to plan B, which was, Hey, maybe we can just loop through New Jersey, come back down to York at a later date, not on the regular fair dates and make that plug into Virginia. Um, so, I, and I've got, I've got to commend it's uh, like, I said, the best part of this industry is the people our our fairs, our fair boards, our fair managers, all of our partners in this industry. have made great decisions uh, have been, really great to work with through a crisis that, that, that we haven't, you know, I've never seen it in this industry. I, I probably World War II is the last time that we saw anything on this scale of, of everyone closing because yeah. we were we were involved in the World War. Um, I certainly don't, you know, I don't recall that because I wasn't alive. Um, <laughs> and, but that's the order of magnitude of the crisis that the, the industry is in right now. And um, I think we can come out of this strong. I, I question whether we can come out of it strong if we go through a significant portion of the 2021 season. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. Without operating. Yeah, with, I was going to say with, with where we're sitting right now in 2020 and, you know, making, you've got a plan assuming you're going to have a normal 21 schedule. You can't just sit back and, and let it happen, you know, see what happens. But do you think from where we're sitting right now that there's carnivals out there right now that were alive in February and March of this year, but might not make it to 20 or 22 or to the end of 21 if we have continued disruption? 
Um, yeah, I think that honestly, you know, just just being straight up, I think the entire industry will be in severe jeopardy if the 2021 season is lost, similar to the 2020 season. I, um, I there's just so many reasons. First of all, everyone who works in the industry is going to go on and go get jobs someplace else, and it's hard to get them to um, come back. And 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 really, it's going to be very difficult to get them to come back. You know, if they find jobs where they're not working weekends, they're not working all their holiday weekends, not, you know, living in a trailer park. Um, it, it's it's a lifestyle. And um, actually, Frank Zychek uh, from Wade Shows made a comment yesterday about how much he's already on the OABA call about how much he's seen his help already getting used to or kind of getting out of the routine of our industry. And that, the, you know, he he vocalized his concern about even the people that are hardcore in this industry saying, Hey, if it's, if it's not going to be what it has been, right. if maybe we're going to have lower crowds, lower gross revenues, smaller margins, maybe, maybe this lifestyle isn't worth what we go through. Well, yeah, and if you look at your, if you look at your employees that are now in the point where, you know, since March, so, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, eight or nine months now um, that they haven't been out on the road. Some of them, if you've had to let any go, if anything like that, you've got employees that are now looking at, well, if I go back with straight shows or if I go back into the carnival industry, what happens on the next pandemic? And, and so does this job over here, you know, being an accountant or doing whatever it is they're going to go do, is there more stability and, and less likely for disruption in the future? I think that's a question we're all looking at. I love entertainment. I love traveling. We are lucky to be financially in a position where we'll, we'll weather the storm. Um, but at some point in here, it becomes, you know, do we do something else? How do we shift? And I think that's a very real concern for the industry, industry wide. Yeah, I, I, and I, yeah, I think it's very important. I think the fairs are very, based on our call yesterday, they're very in tune with that because so many of them have had to go through, you know, they went through furloughs and now many of them are going into full on layoffs or some of them had to do that immediately. But again, they have their people that they really want to bring back, but they just don't have the means to do it right now. And there's going there, I think there's certainly going to be an impact because this has lasted longer than we all thought it was going to last. Yeah. Um, how big that impact is right now, I don't think we know. But um, I think moving, I think everyone's holding on. I think a lot of people, after they realized it was going on longer that I've talked to in the carnival side of the business, said, okay, what do we got to do to make it to next March? You know, financially and, you know, just with everything. And, so they said, what, you know, what if it's a year? Um, I, the way I'm looking at it right now, I think our Florida fairs are going to operate. Um, but I don't think that, I, I think we would be naive to think that they're going to operate at full capacities and, and getting all the crowds. Maybe we can adjust the expense side of things so that we don't destroy the margin. But I think to, to think everything's going back to normal in 2021 would be naive. I think we can change things like they did in Pensacola, scale back so that we try to maintain margins sure. um, and cash flow um, and, and recover at least the Florida route for the beginning of 2021. But yeah. after talking to an awful lot of carnival providers and fairs that are in places that aren't 
as open as Florida is right now. Um, Michigan, I think Wisconsin, Ohio, New York. I mean, the, the tone or the, the sentiment out of everyone up there was so starkly different from the Florida-based carnivals because at least we have a light at the end of the tunnel. We, we, we are operating in Florida. We can pull a permit now. Um, these guys have states that aren't going to allow them to operate. They're not going to inspect the rides. Right. They're not going to give them their ride inspection. And they don't, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. They don't know when they can operate again. And it, it's, it was, it's just very, very different set of circumstances. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm more concerned about our Northern route, which is the core. I mean, the fair season, the Northern route is the core of the revenue generation sure. you know, for all of us. Uh, so, so they, you know, yes, we can stave off, uh, you know, disaster by operating in Florida, but if everybody tells us, no, you can't come North, um, I, I don't see much of this industry um, surviving in the way that we are right now. We're not going to hunker down and be okay. Right. <laughs> that's, well, that's and then you, you face the, even if you do open, you know, you face the, the prospects of, okay, what if we don't open fully normally? You talked about you alluded to Pensacola and how they scaled back. Did they um, did they just have less rides in Pensacola? Did they bring a little less or? Yeah. So, well, they, they, they did a lot different. I think they only based on talking with Andy Degler, I think two days ago. Um, first of all, I think Rick Reithoffer didn't have enough help to be able to do the whole fair. So he invited Andy Degler and probably some other independents. I'm, I'm not sure, but I know Andy agreed to bring about half the rides. Yeah. So that's, again, two shows that are competitors coming together because nobody has enough help to right. do it. Um, and worked with the committee there to scale back the number of rides because there wasn't enough help to produce the full midway. And it wouldn't have made sense given the circumstances. Sure. The fair, I believe, only opened one exhibit building. I think they booked a circus, and he didn't give me any other idea. I'm sure they had an independent midway of whatever vendors they could that were close enough to make it make sense in their route. Um, but they scaled the midway back, I think, to about 75% of what it typically is. So then if you guys face the next challenge of, and this was something that um, earlier in the season when I spoke with Linnell Smith from the Sydney Royal Easter Show, then you face the challenge of protecting your brand. You know, what happens when you go in and say, oh, here's the Pensacola Interstate Fair, the Lake County Fair, the Osceola County Fair, but we've only got 60% or 70% of what we usually have. You know, do you do you, can you get away with charging the same price and how does it look to the guest? You know, what is the guest experience or do they come in and go, Oh, if this is what fairs are going to be now, I don't want to come. I think that our customers are savvy enough to understand that because of everything that's gone on, I'm not as worried about, about doing it. If it's done in the same quality level. Sure. Um, you know, it, 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 does, it would concern me if we took and, and had a show that I didn't feel carried the quality that we do, went into one of our events and did, you know, produced a lower quality midway, that they might feel that way. But I think if we scale back the equipment, but we still have the quality, and I think very importantly, if we pay attention to the COVID, uh, the, adapt to it with all of the sterilization, the hand sanitizing, the masks, you know, be compliant and require as much as we can that our guests 
comply, um, which I think is one of the stickier issues that we face here in Florida, like in, in our county here, where we'll hopefully operate in December with our own event. There's a mask mandate and right. our permit is our permits contingent on us requiring that our guests wear masks. That is proven in, in the Southeast, I think, to be difficult to achieve. Um, you know, I think in the Northeast, people are wearing their masks because they got hit so hard. Down here, we have a we've got a rebellious section of the, our demographic. I was going to say it's the same in the <laughs> Southwest. Yeah, that that is like I'm not wearing. You know, I'm not listening to those people. I've I've got my constitutional right. Not you yeah. know, I, I don't I don't agree with it. I because we've been you know basically put out of business by this. I am happy to have all our employees wear masks, have all of our guests wear masks, and get back to doing business. Right. I think I think there's plenty of evidence that the masks do at least diminish the transmission sure um so i think it, it, it's like a civic duty as opposed to saying hey <laughs> you're forcing me to do this i think the opposite of this hey i don't want someone else's or my parents to die from right. covid because they're at risk so i'm going to wear my mask because i care about other people right. not because i'm being self-centered sure and well and we kind of have this attitude right. out here in the southwest you know and i think that literally stems if you look back in u.s history to westward expansion people didn't leave the safe confines of uh, you know baltimore new york and philadelphia just for the fun of it like they wanted to be left alone <laughs> and so yeah. we have this very rebellious screw the government kind of attitude I was there in the beginning and I think part of it was because maybe some denial over what was going on, but I wear my mask now. I'm all about it. My concern and the thing that annoys me is when we, you have a governor that says, we got to wear masks. You got to wear masks. You got to wear masks because they're going to let us reopen. Okay, cool. We all wear masks and then no reopening. It's like, okay, yeah. well we did it. It just feels like from the government perspective that the goalposts continue to move, which I think only fans the flames of those of us that are a little bit more rebellious in nature, instead of saying, okay, you all of you, you're wearing masks. And so that carnival can happen at a reduced level with reduced occupancy, or I think across the nation with everybody facing different mandates from different governors and different rules, it has been very challenging. Yeah, and I, there's a lot of frustration out there, and like I said, I've got some deep concern for the our our shows that are in states or operate routes that are in states that have taken positions. I think the governor of Pennsylvania said until there's a vaccine that's widely distributed, they were going to stay in shutdown. That could be forever. <laughs> well, it could, correct. That could actually be forever because we don't know that it's going to happen. It, it appears that it's going to happen. Right. But um, I think that the that differentiation between jurisdictions and you know political parties i think it's fairly obvious that the democratic jurisdictions have shut down harder than the republican jurisdictions have tried to open more you know vigorously than, than other places um i think there's a, a fundamental problem with that for our industry and in that we we need consistency on a route in order to mobilize yeah. And so, you know, where I said, you know, we would typically go from Florida to South Carolina to New York. Well, I'm fairly confident that I can go from Florida to South Carolina in 2021. Based on what I'm hearing out of New York, that's not, it's not a guarantee. So, yeah. and Vermont will be right there with them. Vermont has been, you know, shut down pretty hard. Sure. Um, 
But like you talk about with the miles, even if you get into South Carolina and Vermont opens, but New York's closed, is it, that is it worth work. the jump? It's not worth it the jump. It doesn't work. And so um, when I was talking with the Florida Federation of Affairs, I said that, you know, we need a continuity of business. It's, and and the, the idea that we can be shut down one hour before opening, uh, it, it's, it's, it's daunting. It's like, you know, it could happen. Uh, what I explained to the Florida Fed is that we all need to be adamant about opening and and communicating with our officials and our jurisdictions, but fighting to get open responsibly. Yeah. Say, look, we're going to do everything we can. There is, as far as I can tell, outdoor events are about as safe as you can get, as long as you're not drinking in close proximity. Right. The, the transmissions that we've seen out of large events where people drink um, and are you know close and talking louder than they normally would and probably actually physically closer than they would be normally because sure. they're they're drinking. I think there's definitely a threat there, but for our events that are family-based events where people can generally socially distance in their family core groups or their friend groups um, and maintain those distances at some diminished capacities, um, I think we've proven already that it's fairly safe. Delaware State Fair. Myrtle Beach, we had not a, this is the one that kills me, we haven't had a single employee or know of any guests from any of the operations at the amusement park during the summer, at the Myrtle Beach Speedway, um, anywhere that's contracted the virus. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is kind of surprising to me. We were in Myrtle Beach operating during a, the national peak and with masks and sanitization and all the things that we did do, we don't know of a case that came out of the event never get hit the media with it and never had an employee that contracted the virus. Yeah. Um, and now I, now I'll, I'll say that since then I have had one employee that contracted the virus and that was in my home office and she is pretty much isolated all day and does payroll and payables. And you know, I mean, everyone's socially distanced and no one else got, she got it from her husband. And because of our, our reduced schedule, she never transmitted it to anyone here because she yeah. wasn't around us. But that's the only employee that I know of that got it during this entire process. Yeah. Well, and I feel like if I can stand on the sticker in line at the grocery store that says stay six feet away, then people can, can stay six feet away waiting to get on that carousel of yours or on the Ferris wheel. They can if, spread if, out in line. If we alter our layouts, if we, I, I think there are, there are, there's responsible things we need to do. We need to spread the rides out a little. We need to wrap some queue lines around rides so that we have the room to to put people six feet apart um there, there's some other there are actually some rules that they came up with at the theme parks for the queues in orange county florida where where we're based that makes sense they, they you know they don't want your queue to wrap around snake around on itself so they want hard corners on them that are like 90 degrees um if they don't wrap in a circle around then that keeps level. another three feet between the or so between yeah the so it's all about just maintaining that distance but i don't think if we pack all the equipment in the way we normally do um and don't provide for some structured cues that we'll be able to handle it as well as we can you know as as well as we have in the past um you know the, the other the other thing that is very interesting in a lot of these states that aren't going to allow carnivals to operate is they are allowing their amusement parks to operate and that was the, that was a situation that we had here in orange county florida um they had a task force that was set up to open up universal disney sea world um fun spot all, you know all the local all the majors parks. yeah all the big ones and when we went to see about getting a permit for our december 
event, and this is probably a month and a half ago, um, because we had nothing else to do. We're like, well, maybe we can get open in December. Let's go pull the permit. Not only could we not submit for the permit, they, I mean, they wouldn't even accept it. They, 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 we couldn't put it in and get a no. They just said, we're just not accepting any outdoor event permits at all. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make and, sense. If Dis- Disney's every day is an outdoor event and you guys certainly, I mean, you're not, straight shows is not Disney, but there's no reason you and your people can't be in contact with the folks at Disney and say, how are you doing this? Let's make sure we're all on the same page and doing it safely. And, and at this point, kind of everyone's shared all their COVID guidelines for operation. And, you know, it's, you know, it's, everybody knows what we need to do. So while I was on the call and they said, no, you can't submit a permit. I said, well, are they given any permits out? She tells me, yes, we're, you can obtain an indoor event permit. <laughs> indoor, <laughs> even though it in, seems indoor. like at least the last I've read and this, again, these guidelines change a lot. Seems like last Fauci was talking about in the CDC, they're saying, listen, vitamin D, which is from the sun, is critical in in holding this thing off. So, okay, well, that means let's go outdoors. Outdoors is good. But then they say, no, you can go indoors in a congested space. That doesn't make sense. Well, I've got to believe that they they didn't think a lot about it. And I did. I sent an email to our county commissioners and our county mayor. explaining how it just didn't make any sense and um, within I think three days of sending the email they began accepting the permits and yeah I mean if you guys can if you can demonstrate that you can meet the guidelines and do it safely I don't see why you shouldn't be able to get that permit well I think that's a message for anyone who's listening out there just because you're shut down doesn't mean you shouldn't be asking to not be shut down and pointing out, especially if you've got amusement parks that are operating, if, if, if there's any kind of kind of unfair or you know, inequality in the way they're applying the rules, then you need to point it out and, and, and point it out with a little bit of backbone that you're gonna go get everyone else who's being affected with it and file suit um, if they don't capitulate just from pointing it out. Um, because almost in every case that I've seen documented in the media across the nation, uh, in cases where anyone has threatened to sue or filed suit, they have basically immediately opened them, contingent with the proper plans. But sure. I believe the I believe the gyms in New York State did it. Um, you know, we kind of threatened that we were going to go that route if we couldn't open here. Um, I think the restaurant associations have done it in different states. Um, there's there, there's plenty. If you go Google it, you'll find plenty of places where just the threat, because in a lot of places, it didn't go through due process of law. People were shut down by suggestion. Right. Um, some places they did. They had the emergencies and they, they went through the due process. But in a lot of places, especially early on in this pandemic, uh, fairs and carnals were, were asked, were suggested not to operate and complied. I, I don't think that's a bad thing when we didn't know much about things. But now that we know that outdoor events, you know, your national parks, your beaches, your city parks, I mean, if those can open, then, um, sorry, does that make this cut out? <laughs> oh, no, your, your video cut a little bit, your, your audio is still going just fine. Okay, good. Anyways, um, if they can open all of those things, then there's no reason why we can't responsibly open fairs and, and carnivals, um, especially if amusement parks are operating. So we have to push. Yeah. Um, more so in some places than others, but I think pushing earlier than later 
and and obviously saying you're going to be responsible if for some reason things blow up and change i you know i get it if if if, if you have a spike then things have to be dealt with but um in the meantime i think we should all be planning and pushing to have a a an attenuated if nothing else 2021 season um, and then financially, we should be planning and scaling appropriately based on what we're hearing from our peers, what we're seeing in our regions. I think it's going to be very different from the southeast to the northeast to the southwest. I think the crowds are going to come out in different capacities with different yeah. kind of energies. I think down here, we're seeing crowds coming out pretty strong. Um, I wouldn't anticipate that in places that have been hit harder. Um, that makes it difficult. How do you scale from market to market uh, when you typically would bring in 40 to 60 rides? You know, when you start scaling back, what, what do you, where's the where's that happy spot? You know, that's going to be the the critical mass we need for the smaller events um, and and the bigger events kind of merge together in a in a, a package that doesn't damage a brand. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's that's where I think the the trickiest part of our decision making comes in this season is not going overboard and and not being too gun shy. Well, and, and I think that- I think the real catch there is you're you're sitting and we've we've talked with some other performers and fairs on this uh, on this this season about it. You're sitting in the middle of a pandemic in 2020, but you're you know we don't our our industry whether you're an entertainment or you're a concessionaire or ride operator. I feel like I always live my life 12 to 18 months ahead of where I'm actually living it because you've got to plan so far in advance. And so you guys are sitting here still in the middle of a pandemic going, okay, what is June going to look like? But you've got to plan and, for it. And none of us, none of us really know what June's going to look like. You yep. know, vaccines and distribution of a vaccine would be a dramatic shift. Even the sure. news of it, I think, even the news of it, I think will be um, measurable, you know? Oh yeah. I think the rally the, on the Wall Street last, will be amazing when that happens. The, the you know, the la, you know, if, if we get bad news, the lack of a vaccine, when people expect one towards January or whatever, that'll have an effect on things. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we're, I think the key for us going forward is trying to get back on track in some capacity, you know, as soon as we can doing it responsibly, communicating, uh, cooperating, even even competitors, you know, yeah. um, and and I I would think that we'll see some of this where a part of a route doesn't go together and it doesn't make sense to service something that's too far away, and saying hey guys you're over there, you've got this event that can go, can you cover this one, you know because it doesn't make sense for us to get there. Right. Um, I think that overall our industry needs to look at that maybe even more than we do in an ongoing basis. I think there's efficiencies that we're not reaching that we we will need to. Um, one of the big changes uh, for Florida during this election was, uh, which was surprising for us politically, is we had a referendum on a $15 minimum wage. Um, and, Did that know, pass? It, it passed. Yes, it passed. So that is effectively going to double the, the minimum wage rate between now and 2026 in the state of Florida. Wow. Now, that, that's, that's stuff that we've seen. Uh, is fairly common in the Northeast and you're in your more democratically, you know, strong Northeastern labor union states. Right. Um, I, I was surprised it passed here, but it did. And 
of, uh, certainly for the Florida fairs, but for all the fairs, that's gonna that's gonna shift an entire core of the route, you know, that, that whole Florida route with all, you know, especially with the ride providers because we're so heavy with labor, um, doubling the payroll costs right. in a relatively short period of time. It doesn't kick in until next September and it goes to ten dollars, and then right. it's a dollar a year. In. It's phased in, but. But those are uh, labor is our biggest cost, other than what we pay to our fares. Right. Um, and because of the structure of our contracts, are generally gross revenue contracts. They haven't factored that in. So what what will be coming down the line is, oh hey, we're going to have to have reductions in our contracts because our labor rate is doubling. Right. In the next, you know, in the next. Well, and then what happens? I mean, there's only so much. Will Will the cost of a ride band or cost of tickets increase? Sure. But you can't wake no. up and go, our ride bands were $25 last year, and now they're $45. It's just the public ain't going to have it. In different markets, it gets absorbed differently. So, yes, certainly we'll raise our prices to, you know, we're not going to absorb all of it in a contract, and we're not going to absorb all of it by raising prices. We'll adjust, you know, a little everywhere. Um, you know, we'll probably also get more efficient. I could see with our electronic ticketing and things that, you know, I do believe we're not far off from kind of uh, – kiosks and reducing our ticket seller labor sure. reducing getting rid of ticket boxes altogether everyone goes to the smartphone app scans their phone like you do when you get on an airliner which is has some advantages now because of this the pandemic and the touchless transactions the only way to be truly touchless in a transaction on a carnival midway would be for them to use their phone handle the whole transaction and scan off of their phone where you're not touching it yeah. and you could achieve it Kind yep. of like Disney's done with their magic bands. Um, yep. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't it yeah. ironic? The whole push to go to $15 an hour is to ensure, you know, people a, a quote unquote living wage. And yet, you, you know, ride operators, for everybody from you guys to McDonald's to Disney is going to replace that, that living human with a machine. Yeah. I, I, you know, from a bigger kind of philosophical perspective, there's a perfect storm that's, uh, that's forming against labor against especially transitional jobs your you know first jobs out of high school what you know during high school that kind of stuff working working at the quick serve restaurant um being a, a checkout clerk at the grocery store yeah. um those kind of things um the the combination of um the america the affordable care act the introduction of the 15 dollars minimum wages in a lot of jurisdictions and then much tighter labor laws and, uh, and OSHA and every DOL, you know, as far as compliance checks, audits and all of that. Um, it, it, to me, that's a perfect storm for the, the automation of human labor in, in the places where it can be done. We've seen a lot of it already. I, I think we've all seen a lot of the, the uh, sit down restaurant chains have put the little kiosks on the tables where you, yep. you order, you order on there, you pay on there. Um, and they've, you know, basically cut their wait staffs in half because yep. the order of magnitude, we see it at Home Depot and our local grocery store, um, where you, the self checkouts. Yeah. Cause now you only um, have one person monitoring six or eight self checkouts. Right. You know, Walmart has done it in, in scale. Um, my understanding is that a lot of the quick serve restaurants are in the process of automating the kitchens, uh, the back end on the kitchens. That's wild. In particular, I think McDonald's has gone a long way down the line to automate the kitchens. Um, 
And I, I think that what we're going to see is that the, the, the net effect of pushing the wages up for lower skilled jobs is, is going to be to accelerate automation. And, and we haven't even talked about AI. The, the AI wave, artificial intelligence right. that's coming right now is going to make automation um, much more effective, much more seamless, um, and quite frankly, um, probably more accurate than humans in many cases. Um, and, you know, we're going to see it in automated driving. I think that's probably that, that AI where we'll see, where we're seeing it in the media is with, with, um, you know, autonomous vehicles, Yep. but we're going to have autonomous stuff everywhere. Yeah. And it's really, it's going to eat into an awful lot of jobs. Right. And my, my concern going forward is we need to employ people because um, people have to make a living and, and robots don't. You know, right. well, and you hear you hear criticisms, you know, if you're ever on Twitter or whatnot, you listen to the news, you hear criticisms that, oh, during this pandemic, you know, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, you know, made another quadrillion dollars. Well, yeah, when you put all the mom and pops and the local human beings out of work and there's an automated system on my phone, literally, I've got a device sitting on my desk right next to me that I can just say its name and say, order my toothpaste and it shows up. So of course they're going to make more money and those companies are going to be huge when you take the human labor out of it and say, you're closed. This is a pandemic. You can't operate. What did, what did anybody expect was going to happen? There's definitely well, man, a lot, they, a lot of changes coming for our future, for, for fairs, for carnivals, for, for all of us. Yeah. But I think the, the one thing we have going for us, the biggest thing we have going for us is we are real. We're in person. We're authentic. Amen. We are nostalgia. We, we, you can feel what we do and and in this world now with technology and automation and everything we're talking about there's less and less feel and i think it's important that we continue to to deliver what we deliver because we're, we're delivering an authentic in-person experience that that's not around all the time yep you know I we agree. come in we set it up and and it's um People, you know, how many times do people come up to you and tell you, you know, gosh, you know, I just loved coming to the fair. Every year we came to the fair. This is my favorite memories. Um, and some of our fairs, actually, they have homecomings for the town where people who have moved away come back for the fair. Right. And they come back every year just to see all their friends, all their neighbors, and they do it because the fair's on. That, that's real. And, and that people, humans need that. And no matter, no matter how good our technology gets, we're going to need more and more of it. Because we're yep. going to have less and less of it in other places. Well, and I think and given the do. length of this this protracted shutdown and the social distancing and stay away from each other, you're all going to kill grandma if you go out and pull. There's going to come a point where this thing ends. 1918's pandemic ended. Uh, there's always a point where this comes to an end and we go back to what normal is going to be. And I think there's going to be a desperate desire for people to say, I want to go to the movies. I want to go to the county fair. I want to ride that double carousel. I want the popcorn. I want the, the cotton candy. I want to go see the pig races because they're going to have this desperate desire to be back out. Humans are social creatures. They're going to, we're all going to want to be together again when this ends. I, I think, I think it's easy to get lost in pessimism, but if we can get through the next 12 months and this thing kind of draws to a close and straight shows is still in business and conjure machine is still telling fortunes and the Erie County fair is still open all across the board. I think our industry is going to see the dawning of a new day of success. Unlike anything we've ever seen. Yeah. I think that, I, I think there'll be an appreciation for it. 
Yep. I, I think technology has edged us out a little bit with some of our younger crowd, the video games, the not being in touch with things has eroded away at it. And I think that, I, you know, I agree. I think that people are going to come back to it and appreciate it uh, with a, a, a different kind of level of attention. And yeah. the well, relevancy I mean, will be there. Even my nephew, who, I mean, he's, he's 16 and he's now been on virtual school since, you know, the middle of, towards the end of last spring, even he, who is all about video games is at the point now where he's like, I just want to go to the mall and hang out. I just want to go be with my, like, he doesn't want his phone in his hand. He doesn't want an Xbox controller in his hand. He just wants to go be with his friends. So, so I think if we get through this, I think we see a new, a new wave of people that just want to be together. Like you say, we are a real industry. We give real experiences. And I think there's real value to that. We are just about out of time. I'm so glad you could be on the show today. Before we go, all of my guests all season, I've done a little speed round of questions with them. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Give me a quick answer and, and we'll move on to the next one. Are you ready? Sure. Funnel cake or fried Oreos? Fried Oreos. Favorite thing about the fair? The Midway. And on that Midway, what is your favorite ride? I like the Huss Enterprise. Um, it's an it's an oldie but goodie. Never never gets old. Got it. What was the, what was your favorite concert you've ever attended? Uh, Dave Matthews, by far. Wow. When you travel, name one item that you absolutely must have with you. Well, well, I would say my phone at this point, but it used to be my laptop. Your laptop. Uh, and who was your first celebrity crush? First celebrity crush. Oh, man. That one. Probably Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> you, Maybe myself there. You might but, be, uh, yeah. you might be yeah. the second person this season to say Farrah Fawcett. I, yeah, I say that because I, there's that poster. There's, you know, she had that famous poster. Yep. It, it's everywhere. And they still use it when they, when they talk about her. Um, they still pull that one up all the time. But that was kind of an iconic, uh, it iconic was poster that was everywhere. It definitely was. <laughs> I'm really glad you could be on the show today. Sarah and I are wishing you well and hope that we get to see you out on the road somewhere in 2021. Jace Rates, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.